When we come to look at the prodigal son, or the, the lost son as it's referred to in this particular passage, it's, it's a well-known account, isn't it? It's something we're probably very familiar with. We've heard it in Sunday school. We've probably heard it preached on any number of times. The danger is, of course, when we have something that is familiar to us, um, that we perhaps subconsciously switch off, maybe. We think, well, I've heard that a hundred times. I, I know how the story goes. I know about the younger brother. I know about the father. I know about the, the elder son. I, I know the story. So maybe subconsciously we, we perhaps switch off. I know I have been guilty of that in the past. But this is to our detriment though, isn't it? Because just because something is familiar does not mean it, has, it doesn't have something to tell us, something that um, we can understand afresh from it. Perhaps we just need to be ready and willing to hear that, to have our hearts and our ears ready to hear and to put that into practice. And we pray, don't we, that, that God will do that because God is uh, the one who opens our eyes and opens our hearts and opens our ears. Uh, so as we delve into this parable this evening, I just want to uh, pray for us because, say, in that familiarity, I want something to come out that maybe you've not noticed before or something that you've not thought about before because even in its um, familiarity, we know as we've kind of read other parts of the Bible, don't we, that actually new things can come out, things can come afresh to us. And that is the joy and the beauty of God's word, that just because it is familiar does not mean we have not got something more to learn and to think about. So let's just pray um, as we delve into this passage. Gracious God, we praise you that you speak to us. We praise you that you are here this evening. And Lord, we just want to ask, Lord, in the familiarity of this passage, Lord, that you would speak to us. Maybe just a little detail we've never noticed. Maybe just something afresh that we've, yes, we've heard before, but comes afresh to us this evening. Lord, we thank you for the beauty of your word, that it is living, that it is alive, and that it can speak to us, Lord. And I just want to pray that it will do that this evening in your name. Amen. So let's dive on in, shall we? It's always important when we look at any passage of scripture uh, that we need to just understand a little bit of the context in which uh, Jesus was speaking or understand the context in which the passage is sitting. So this parable of the lost son as it's referred to in the NIV or the prodigal son, you've probably heard it called that as well, sits with two uh, other parables in Luke chapter 15. Uh, they're much shorter in length, uh, but they sit uh, alongside this trio of parables. Of course, the parable of the lost sheep, which again, which I'm sure we're very familiar, and the parable of the lost coin, also I'm sure we're very familiar with. But we are told in verse 1 and into verse 2, who was there when Jesus was preaching? Who was there when Jesus was teaching these three parables? Well, it says, if you look in 15 verse 1 and 2, it says, now the tax collectors and sinners, as it's put, were all gathering round to hear him. The Pharisees were there as well. So the tax collectors and the sinners and the Pharisees were there listening to Jesus speak. And simply put at the outset, it's no great shakes, I'm sure, but Jesus here is setting the scene with these three parables for the fact that Jesus um, is there to be our salvation, that God rejoices when sinners are saved. Lost people need saving. This is what Jesus is saying. And in telling these two parables first, the two shorter ones, uh, Jesus is showing how to these two groups of people, to the tax collectors and the sinners, and to the Pharisees as well, just how God rejoices over the recovery of a lost sinner. The illustration, of course, is, is wonderful, isn't it? That of a shepherd going to find the lost sheep, leaving the others behind, going off into the danger to find this one lost sheep. You might think, well, what's the point of that? He's got 99 others. 
But that misses the point, doesn't it? The one is lost. And the woman who's looking for this coin, sure, she's got some other coins lying around. What's, what's this one coin to her? Well, Jesus is making the point, isn't it? This coin is precious. This coin means something, so they have to be found, just as the sheep is precious. So Jesus is using these two parables first to set the scene for the parable of the lost son. But he's simply saying to the Pharisees and to the sinners and tax collectors. Remember, the Pharisees didn't particularly want to associate with the sinners and the tax collectors. They were at polar opposites, weren't they? You can hear them muttering, this man uh, welcomes sinners and eats with them. You can hear the disdain in the Pharisees' voice. What on earth is he doing? But Jesus is making the same point to both of them. Both these sets of people are precious to God and that God rejoices, as we said, when they are saved. There is much rejoicing when a lost person is found and is saved. And to us that is obvious, of course, and of course it is. But Jesus was telling them simply that God loves the one who is lost. But as we come to the parable of the lost son, he develops this point still further. So as we come to it, uh, he's also seeking to make a very direct point again, uh, both to the sinners, the tax collectors, and to the Pharisees themselves, about how they thought acceptance to God, or how they thought they could be welcomed uh, into God's presence, and how they thought acceptance to God worked. And in this story, he does that through three main characters. And I just want to look at them uh, individually. I'm going to look at the two, the younger son, the elder son, and the father. Now, I'm going to spend a little bit longer on the younger son and the elder son than the the father, uh, but it will all kind of draw together. So three sections. We're going to look at the rebellious younger brother. We're going to look at the religious older brother. And we're going to look finally at the feast of the heavenly father. So firstly, the rebellious younger brother. It is perhaps helpful to see these parables having two stories within a story, each uh, allowing us an insight into what Jesus was talking, but also about the thoughts and the actions of each brother. So the first story, the first act, if you like, is the lost younger brother. And Jesus used him to speak very directly to the tax collectors and the sinners, as they are referred to in the NIV. He's using this to illustrate simply Those who have lived by the flesh, those who have lived by their own rules, those who have sought personal accumulation, those who have sought pleasures in life, that actually they are lost. They are the younger brother, if you like. And the story begins, again, I know we are familiar, but the story begins with a very familiar, uh, but sorry, a very shocking request. The younger son says, give me my share of the estate. Not many words, that doesn't mean a lot to us, but in a society where the allocation of wealth and resources, uh, in, in our society where the allocation of wealth and resources is perhaps not so clear cut, we can perhaps miss the significance of what the younger brother is asking for here. This Middle Eastern society was a deeply patriarchal society where deference and respect to your elders and to one's parents was absolutely paramount. Asking for his share of the state while his father was still alive was a sign of deep, deep disrespect. It's effectively wishing him dead. He is saying, give me your share of the wealth because I can't be bothered to wait till you're dead. So actually, I want you dead now because I want what you can give me. He's saying, dad, I want your wealth, but I don't want you. I want what you can give me materially, but I don't want you. Can you imagine the turmoil that the father must have felt? Don't underestimate the magnitude of this request. It's only, say, five or six words, but do not underestimate the magnitude of this request. 
and the impact upon the father. It requires him to tear his life apart. It's not simply a case of him popping down to HSBC and drawing out a wad of cash. No, this would have required him to sell his land, to sell his property, to sell his servants, to sell his, um, his livelihood. It would have been caught up in his, in his estate of property and everything like that. So this wouldn't have been a work of the moment. But this he did. He sold it. He ripped apart his life, his resources, his land, his servants, his property, all that, so that the son could receive his inheritance. And the father honors his request. The son says, give him my share. The father says, I will. And as he does that, there's not, in a sense, a word of warning about what will happen to him or be careful or he just lets him go. The loving father lets him go. So not only does he endure a loss of honor from the fact that he's had to sell his land, you know, it would have been, been news in the, uh, in, in the tents around wherever they lived. Do you hear about the, the younger son? He's, he's fled. He's gone away. He's, the father has sold all his land. So the father endures the loss of honor as well as the pain of rejected love simply to allow his son's request, simply to allow the son to leave. So in verse 13, we're told off he goes. Off he goes with this wealth in his back pocket. And again, we know the next part of the story well, don't we? But he heads off and he squanders it all. He wastes it all. He spends it all. Living an out-of-control lifestyle that ultimately cannot be sustained. He is like the tax collectors and the sinners seeking his own pleasure, his own fulfillment. And he finds that actually he cannot sustain it. You can imagine, can't you, as he had all the money in his pocket, what he was going to do. Big dreams, big aspirations, big, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be this big thing in the city, in this distant land, wherever that was. I'm going to use my money for influence. I'm going to use this money for, uh, for gaining what I want. We've all had those dreams and aspirations, haven't we? And this younger son does too, but it doesn't quite work out that way, does it? These dreams, whatever they were, these aspirations, whatever they were, they lie in tatters. The life that he had dreamed of living is gone. The friends he had accumulated have gone. The money he had in his back pocket has gone. He's penniless and alone. His self-centered lifestyle has come crashing around him. And just doing a bit of cash, just to try and keep his head above water, he goes and works for somebody and ends up in a pigsty. And it is there that cogs start to tick into place. As he sat in the pigsty, he realizes just what a plonker he's been. There he is eating the pig food. I can't quite imagine what that would be like. Um, probably not very pleasant. And he thinks, he says, well, if I was at home, I'd have a bed to sleep in. I'd have food to eat. I'm here lying in a pigsty, surrounded by muck. So his plan is to simply return home. Admit to his father that he was wrong and admit that he had forfeited his right uh, to be a son of his father. You can hear him thinking it over in his head. Right, what I'm going to do, I'm going to go back. I'm going to have this big, long speech ready. And I'm going to say to my father, listen, I know I've given all that up. I know I, I have no rights. But hire me as a servant. Hire me as a hired hand and I will work for you. I'll work in the fields. I'll work on your buildings and I will earn a wage just to try in vain to pay back the debt that I have caused you. This is his plan. Sounds a good one, doesn't it? 
But he says, what other options have you got? It's the best he's got. What have I got to lose in a sense? It's got to be better than this. So having made his mind up, he sets off for home. And again, I want you to put yourself in the mind of that younger son for a minute. We're told in the passage that it was a distant land. So this again, it's not, there's no taxis or high-speed trains or anything like that. So he'd have walked back and all the time he was walking back, he's thinking, what sort of reaction am I going to get? What will my father say to me? What will the village say about me? You can see it. You can perhaps feel his, his tension, understandably. He's going back into a situation. He doesn't know quite what's going to happen. But in light of all that has happened, the father's reaction is startling. The father's reaction is off the scale, isn't it? The father sees his son while he is a long way off. Again, this statement is eye-opening, isn't it? We perhaps miss it, but it's eye-opening. While he, he sees him while he was a long way off. This, this indicates to me, at least, that day after day, he'd been sitting, he'd been standing, watching, waiting for his son to come back, hoping upon hope that he would return. I don't know, maybe this picture of sitting on a balcony on his rocking chair, I don't know. And he sees his son while he is a long way off because he's scouring the horizon. He's looking for his son. He's looking for his wayward son to come back. Can you imagine how the father's heart leaps with joy when he sees him after all these years? We don't know how long he was away for, but after all these years, probably, he runs, he sees his son and he runs out to meet him. Again, the father running again, Perhaps we slightly overlooked that. But again, in, in a Middle Eastern society, heads of the household did not run. That would have been deeply, deeply undignified. He'd have had long robes, which would have him having to hitch up his, his robes, show some ankle, and run. No. Children ran. Women ran. Heads of the household didn't. But this is what he did. He picked up his robes, bared his thighs like a child, and ran at full speed to his son. Undignified? He doesn't care. And no doubt this would have caught the son by surprise. I'm, I'm sure it would have done. He's expecting to have to crawl and grovel his way back to his father. He's expecting to have to stand and deliver his own plan for redemption. He's rehearsed it all the way back. He's thinking, well, what if he says this, then I can say that. We, we've all done it, haven't we? The kind of these speeches we need to give. But he never gets a chance. He never gets a chance to present his own plan the father doesn't allow him a chance to talk. You notice here as, he, as his father runs out and gives him a big bear hug. The younger son's about to go, but he said, but tells him to shush. Doesn't allow him a chance to talk before telling his servants to go and get the best robe and put it on him. The best robe in the household would have belonged to the father himself. Okay? And this would have been an unmistakable sign that he belonged, that he belonged to the family. The father is saying to the son, there is nothing you need to do. No debt you need to pay off. I'm not going to wait till you've groveled. I'm not going to wait for you to pay the debt off. I'll simply take you back. And while I'm at it, I'm going to cover your rags. I'm going to cover your poverty with the robes and the riches of my position in the household once again. Because as the younger son found, that's the thing with people who live their life according to their own rules. Their own rules of personal accumulation, of personal pleasure. They can only last for so long. It'll either come crashing around you, or there'll be a desire to always have more, which can never ultimately be satisfied. But Jesus is telling uh, 
the tax collectors and the sinners, when it does come crushing around you, when you have had enough of this lifestyle, there is the arms of a loving father ready to invite them into this magnificent feast. doesn't matter what you've done to other people, to your family, to yourself. The message is clear that in the father's house, there is an abundance of forgiveness, that there is a feast available and the feast is overflowing because nothing not even our own groveling apologies. We often think, don't we, that actually if we're sincere in our apology, that actually that means a bit more to God than if we don't feel quite so sincere. But that's not what it's about. And this picture is very clear for us to understand because we've all been there, haven't we? We've all been there. We've all been in this position of being far away from the Father, of not knowing what debt we have. We understand this narrative and we rejoice in it because it is easy for us to understand, isn't it? We were once far from God. Something happened in our life and we came into that relationship. We experienced that love of the Father of him clothing us with that robe. Because we sit here this evening, if you're a Christian, because the Father has run out to meet you. He's thrown that robe of righteousness around you and has invited you to his eternal feast. And it's a glorious and simple message of salvation, isn't it? You might say, well, I've, I've heard that a thousand times. Well, good. Because the message of salvation is wonderful and is glorious and should be wonderful and glorious every time we hear it. But for all its richness and beauty and what it reminds us, the younger son does not stand alone in this story, because as well as the rebellious younger brother, we have the religious elder brother. If we're honest, when we read this story, quite often we will overlook the elder brother, won't we? We, we kind of read about him, but we kind of overlook him a little bit. Because deep down, perhaps we understand. We understand the elder brother. We understand his sense of unfairness. We can understand why he's a little bit cheesed off. Because if we're honest, we all have a little bit of the elder brother inside of us. But we read in the story, don't we, in verse, uh, it's around, but verse 28, we read that the older brother is furious, absolutely seething. He turns a bright red, maybe. You can hear that he's so angry about what has happened, about what the servants have told him of what's gone on. Picture the scene. You know, this this uh, patriarch, this, uh, this elder statesman of the community has put on the most amazing public event because his son, younger son, has kind of come home. It had been one of the, the parties of the season, no doubt. But the elder brother remains on the outside, steadfastly refusing to go in, refusing the invitation of the father. Why? Simply because he perceives the treatment that the younger brother has had to be distinctly unfair and perhaps we can understand that can't we we can understand the way that he's feeling this miscarriage of justice he's angry at the expense and the extravagance that has been thrown around as the elder brother would say on this loser on this younger brother who has frittered everything away and yet here is the father putting the best robe on him getting the fattened calf throwing a massive party what a waste he deserves to be thrown out of the family Don't forget that when the father put that robe on the younger brother, 
he's effectively making him an heir to the estate again. So we read in the beginning that he had a third of the estate. So the two thirds that is left is now split three ways again. So perhaps you can see the elder brother going, well, that's X number of thousand pounds down the drain that was due to be mine. He's welcomed him back and he's given him that money again. In that same situation, would we not be a little bit miffed, a little bit angry, a little bit cross, that somebody who has been so far off, who's so, been so sinful, should come and receive all the things that we have ever had? As if nothing has happened. He just kind of waltzes back as if nothing has ever gone on. All the shame that he has brought on the family name, all the shame he's brought on his father, just waltzes back in as if nothing has happened. Now, of course, we know that's not the case, but we can sense the brother being bristled by that. And we read just how annoyed he is. The elder brother says, look, to his father, he said, look, I've worked myself to death. I've never done anything wrong. The father goes outside to plead with him, though. He says, please come in. It doesn't matter. Please come in and share in this feast. But it appears that he doesn't. And in refusing to enter, just as the younger son showed a great disrespect to his father, so here the elder son is showing a great disrespect. And he's not entering simply because his own pride will not allow him to. And the father still pleads, please come on in. Share in this feast. I'm not going to disown your younger brother just because you think I should. But I'm not going to disown you. I want you to come in. I want you to come in and share the feast. Swallow your pride. Come on in. Share what is here. And the story ends with us not really knowing. It kind of leaves it on a bit of a, a cliff edge, doesn't it? If we read it, it says, My son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. It doesn't say whether he goes into the feast or not. So does he remain on the outside? Or does he go in? Well, we're not told. And I, I wonder why Jesus did this. I wonder why kind of Jesus stopped so abruptly when he was uh, preaching, apparently reaching no obvious conclusion. Well, I think in speaking to the crowd, he wants them to draw their own conclusion about what he's saying to them. Because don't forget, he's speaking to the sinners and the tax collectors as well as the Pharisees. The Pharisees were there. Because the elder brother was, like the Pharisees, fastidiously obedient. He followed the rules. He does what he's told. He works hard. He does everything the father ever asks of him. But the strange thing is, unlike his younger brother, whose wrongdoing keeps him away from his father. It's his own pride and his own moral record that keeps him separated from his father. He thinks he deserves more simply because he has kept the rules. Verse 29 says, look, all these years I have been slaving for you. Never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me anything. But when this son of yours, you know, it's the disdain in his voice, when this son of yours... Doesn't he refer to him as his brother, this son of yours? You can hear the spite in his voice, can't you? He's come and squandered the fat and you, you kill the fattened calf when he comes back. He's not a happy bunny. But in the context of the story, if the Pharisees knew what Jesus was talking about, which I'm sure they did, this would have been a killer for the Pharisees because the elder son, the one who obeyed all the rules, the one who did everything right, remains looking in, remains looking in on the feast. And despite the appeals of his father to come in, it appears he remains on the outside. 
The irony of the two brothers is this, that the, the bad one goes into the feast, whilst the good one does not. You can always hear the Pharisees gasp in astonishment as they put two and two together. They'd have known that this elder brother was referring to them as Pharisees. They gasp in astonishment. It's a total reversal of everything they'd ever set their stall out by. The Pharisees did everything right. The Pharisees obeyed the rules. The Pharisees were fastidious in everything, like not healing on the Sabbath or picking stuff up or doing work. They were fastidious. They followed the laws to the letter. Yet from what Jesus is saying, the good ones are on the outside looking in. But of course, Jesus wants his listeners to know that both the brothers were in the wrong. Neither has a defined right to their father's wealth and possessions at any stage. It is merely the generosity of the father himself that allows them anything in the first place. Because regardless of what had led to that point, it is the father that goes out. It is the father that goes out to seek them out, to invite them to come in to the feast. Because ultimately, the brothers' hearts were exactly the same. Their actions had alienated them from their father's love. Each one had rebelled. It's just one rebelled by being bad, one rebelled by being good. So we can be alienated from God whether we keep none of the rules or whether we keep all of the rules. It's just the younger brother realizes from his position of weakness that he needed the father. He needed the father. He was aware he deserved nothing. He was aware that his, you know, his position in the pigsty was probably where he should be. He knew that his position was not very high up in terms of his father, what he perceived his father's priorities to be. He had nothing, and if he returned home, well, he wouldn't be surprised if he still had nothing. Yet the elder brother already has everything. But he demands that this fact, that the fact that he's kept the rules, the fact that he's obeyed his father, this gives him extra privileges. He's not aware of his own heart's condition. He's so bound up in what he doesn't have or what he perceives not to have, he forgets the great lavishes of the father's uh, household that he already does. So the message of the elder brother is quite hard for us to digest. Could it be that those of us who are Christians, who are close to the Father, or so may we may think, that actually maybe we are distant from him. Because we're seasoned Christians, aren't we? We've been around the church for a number of years. And perhaps we therefore fall into the trap of the elder brother syndrome. We serve the church faithfully. We attend weekly. We serve coffee. Uh, we put the chairs away. We teach in Sunday school. We, uh, we hoover up. We uh, come to YF. We lead music. We lead services. We do lots in the church. We're very good Christians. Subconsciously, or maybe consciously, I, I know I do it consciously, we think that our obedience to the church gives us some sort of leverage over God. We often think that the church should serve us and do what we want. We should sing these songs because I don't like those noisy ones. We should pray like this because I don't like the liturgy stuff. We should have short sermons because I can't stand it when Andrew prattles on for 30 minutes. We have elder brother syndrome. Or perhaps when illness or suffering or personal tragedy strike our lives. 
We question God because we're Christians. This shouldn't happen to us. I've served my Jews. I've given faithfully. I've served in the church. Why would God do this to me? We've got elder brother syndrome. And maybe I remember having slightly uh, jokey conversations with my sister as a young person. We always used to say when <laughs> you'd hear about somebody becoming a Christian, we always used to say, why should they have all the fun and then become Christians? Why should they go off in a life of, uh, of heavy living and then come and have the same privileges that we have as Christians? It's unfair, isn't it? It's unfair they should go out and enjoy the world, whereas we have to conform to the rules. I had, I still have, elder brother syndrome. So are we relying as Christians on our religion to be our defining characteristic? Are those assumed because we attend church, because you faithfully turn out on a warm evening in July, and because we serve God, that gives us a much better place, and therefore the church should serve our desires and what we want. Because here Jesus is making a radical statement about the position and the state of the human heart. We're guilty, aren't we, of defining sin as a list of broken rules. But Jesus is effectively saying that the elder brother who broke none of the rules is lost, as lost as the younger brother who went off and squandered all his wealth. He's as lost as the one who broke all the rules. Because sin is not about breaking rules, is it? Sin is not about ticking things off that we do. It's not about a kind of a balance of things that... You know, we do these things, but we don't do those things. Because sin is not about breaking rules. Sin is about putting ourselves in the position of God, acting judge and jury about what goes on around us, thinking that we can make all the decisions, thinking that we know better. Of course, we can trace this all the way back to the beginning of Genesis, can't we? God had given Adam and Eve absolute freedom in the garden, absolute freedom. Just the one simple rule, don't eat from that tree. The sin then was not eating the apple. But in eating it, the assumption is that they knew better. They fell for the serpent's lie. Their eyes were opened, but not in a good way. And this is what we try and do, doesn't it? We, we try and make our own rules before God. We think that we know better. So I wonder, are you a younger brother? Are you an elder brother? I don't know, but as the story says, actually, whether you are the younger brother or whether you are the older brother, it doesn't actually matter. Because there is one crucial part of the story that is true and glorious, whether you are an older brother or younger brother, and that is the feast of the Heavenly Father. Jesus often depicts salvation as a feast. Uh, it's an illustration, if you like food, that you can easily understand, doesn't it? We always say, you know, when Jesus spoke in parables, it's because he, the people to whom he, could, he was speaking, they could understand it. When he speaks of a feast, that is something we can understand, can't it? We can picture a feast, can't we? It's very easy for us to understand. But the feast presented here in the parable of the lost son, or perhaps the lost sons would be better, re represents the great feast of God that he wants us to be part of and he wants us to share in. But as I come to a close, I just want to leave you three challenges to help us as Christians experience that feast on a day-to-day -day basis that, that will shape our lives and free us from the feeling that we have to keep the rules, free us from the feeling uh, that we are like the elder brother. 
Because, hey, it's not about following the rules, is it? But salvation is experiential, first of all. Jesus is the master of the banquet, and he calls us to come and taste and see. See it, experience it. We can agree with the principle of salvation, can't we? It's just sometimes, we, well, we are called to experience it, to pick up the food of salvation and try it because it will be good for us. It'd be dreadful, wasn't it, if our salvation was merely theoretical? If we kind of read it in the Bible and kind of went, well, that's nice, but it made no difference to us because salvation should change us. Salvation should be an experience for us. Because we might know that God is love, but it's through our daily walk with him, as we put our trust in him through the things that life throws at us, that actually we experience that and we understand it and we know it more and more and more. So salvation is experiential. Salvation is individual. Again, using the example of food, it's, it's a good one, isn't it? Because a meal fuels our nourishment. It helps us to grow. It gives us energy. To grow as Christians, we must eat of this feast. We must eat of this salvation regularly. We must take, make the truth of the gospel central to everything that we do as young people, as middle-aged people, as older-aged people. Because religion operates on the elder brother principle that says, I obey, therefore God accepts me. But salvation through Jesus says, God accepts me, therefore I obey, and therefore I will serve. The problem is, isn't it, that our default mode, though, kind of pushes us back to the younger brother, pushes us back into our old life, kind of pulls us back, like a big magnet always trying to draw us back to what we've, through Christ, managed to escape. We all know that cycle, don't we, of that, that struggle that Paul talked about, the things I do that I don't want to do, and the things I don't want to do, I do. You can, kind of, you can feel that, can't you? But we must root our lives and our day-to-day existence in the truth of Jesus and his salvation. If you want to know how to do that, read Hebrews 13. Practical Christian living, what should our lives look like if we are rooted in Christ? Go away and read Hebrews 13. But finally, salvation is communal. Feasts are great, aren't they? Meals together with people are great. There's nothing more pleasurable than sharing a meal with somebody because you get to know them, you can experience them, you can get to know them better. Salvation needs to be shared and developed within the church. We all talk about wanting to know Jesus better. It's a phrase that I often find kind of trips off the tongue without really knowing what we mean by that and how we, we are going to get to know Jesus better. We talk about this kind of great, not a pie in the sky, but we talk about it in kind of quite woolly terms because we don't really know how to get to know Jesus better sometimes. It can be done alone, of course it can, but it's harder. But it, have you ever experienced the joy of sharing your Christian experience with somebody else? Those of you in YF, in a house group, you share something of your story. You share something of your salvation. And you are encouraged. You are drawn in because you see the difference that it makes. Friends, salvation doesn't depend on you being good keeping the rules, being obedient, attending church day after week after week, day after day. These things does not a Christian make. Because our salvation is a gift, isn't it? It is our Heavenly Father who has come out to meet us. We've all been alienated from his family. 
But thankfully, through Jesus, we are embraced, we are welcomed into his family. And he's put that eternal robe around us, welcomed us back. When all we deserved is rejection, when all we deserved is to stay in that pigsty, the Father has welcomed us. He's made us heirs to his eternal feast again. Your invitation to the feast came at no cost to you, but came at a great expense to the Father, to our Father God. Because he sacrificed his one and only son, the most precious thing that he had. He gave him up for you and for me. God demanded no payment for our sin. God demanded that we don't keep the rules to make atonement for our sin. Even when we try vainly to try and earn our way back to God, he embraces and tell us, tells us that debt is paid. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And Jesus is saying that the ways of the younger brother and the elder brother are both spiritual dead ends because the way to enter the feast is already here through the loving arms of the Father Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this picture. We thank you for what it tells us and what it teaches us and what it opens up to us. Lord, I just pray that wherever we are, Lord, that we would not rely on keeping the rules to kind of earn our way back to you. We would not rely on our own skills and gifts, but we would just simply turn to you and say, Father, please accept me as I am. Come, put that robe around me, and I will, I will walk with you. I will journey with you, wherever that takes us. Amen.